It's good to see all of you. It's good to be seen by you. Thankful for the, uh, for the Lord's workings. Uh, Pastor David and Dina are off for a weekend, and uh, he asked me if I would uh, step in for him this morning. And uh, it's a real privilege to be here. Uh, is, uh, where did, uh, where's Hector? There's Hector. Uh, Hector and his wife, Katie, met with the uh, Midwest District Licensing Committee this previous week, and uh, they are now card-carrying credentialed official workers in the uh, Christian and Missionary Alliance. So congratulations to y'all. We're proud of y'all, and this, will, this starts a journey for them uh, that'll, that'll cover the next uh, couple of uh, a couple of years, and uh, it's going to be a great privilege for us as the body of Christ to uh, to walk alongside them while they while they go through uh, this this process. <clears throat> I'd like for us to stand, and I'd like for us to do something uh, a little bit different, and. Uh, uh, Hopefully, it will be very, very significant to you. I would like for us to read the Word of God in unison. And so, be, be listening to what others say so that you're not either running ahead or lagging behind. Uh, we do not need to read the references. I've included the references uh, so that you know that I'm not just pulling this out of the air. Uh, but it is from the Bible. So let's read together. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Pray with me, please. Holy Father, we come to you this morning in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you that you have given to your little born ones free access to you through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And I thank you that you are present with us this morning because we are here in that name. And we ask, Father, that as we are in this place together and in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that God the Holy Spirit would be free to move through his word to speak to our hearts, to bring conviction into our hearts, and to give us uh, hope, to give us direction, to reveal to us in, in ways in which you want us engaged for the future of your church, the future of your kingdom. So I pray, Father, that at this moment you would give us ears that hear, that we might glorify you in all that you say to us, in the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to start by emphasizing a, a short phrase uh, that we will repeat more than once during the next uh, little bit of time, and that is this, lost people matter to God. Lost people matter to God. Can you say that with me? Lost people matter to God. Wherever they may be, lost people matter to God. I'm sure that all of us have been uh, caught up in what is going on over in, uh, in Europe, uh, and uh, hopefully our hearts are, uh, are broken for the peoples of uh, Ukraine and in the midst of all of this conflict that is going on. I am not speaking to a geopolitical purpose in bringing this to our attention. But just to, just to give you a little bit of background, this is really kind of a lead in. Uh, uh, right there uh, is Ukraine. And of course, here is Russia and with other uh, countries that, that used to be, uh, excuse me, I was circling the wrong thing. Here's Ukraine. Yeah, my geography is great. It really is. Uh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I'm glad you can read. Uh, so here's Ukraine, and uh, maybe it's a little bit easier for me to read it this way, uh, and to see those countries that, that are around, and the realization that at one time, all of these countries, uh, as well as others up here, were a part of the Soviet Union. And uh, uh, the point I want to make to you, uh, as, as we learn a little bit about Ukraine, is maybe it's an asking the question of why. But here's some things about Ukraine. First of all, Ukraine is about 43 million people in this relatively small country. Well, I shouldn't say relatively small. It's approximately uh, the size of the state of Texas. How about those cowboys? <laughs> 43 million people, 35 million would identify themselves as Christian. The vast majority of them are Greek Orthodox or Eastern Orthodox or Eastern Catholic or some mixture therein. 2.6 million would identify themselves as Protestant, Independent, 
or maybe we could put them into that, that term uh, of an evangelical. Bible-believing, uh, believing in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation and for, for life. Evangelical missions see Ukraine as key to training leadership for Ukraine, Eastern Europe, and Russia. There are at least three that I could find, but I know that there are more, uh, uh, Protestant evangelical seminaries in the city of Kiev alone. Uh, there is a seminary there that is associated uh, with the Christian and Missionary Alliance. There is one who is associated with the Southern Baptist. There are other seminaries there. There is a training group there uh, that is associated with Youth Ministries International. A friend of mine is a, is a teacher there, and their purpose is training youth workers, not just for Ukraine, but for all of this part of Europe. Therefore, missiologists see this country as being very key in reaching what they call the, the, the Eurasian, the Eurasia uh, area. And so a very, very important part. Thousands of people, as you've been watching television, I read this morning that they're estimating that within the next week over 150,000 people will flee Ukraine. Uh, you've seen the pictures of the cars uh, backed up uh, trying to get out of the country. Uh, last night I saw uh, videos of families who had abandoned their cars and walked for 12 hours just carrying what they could carry in order to get out of, uh, out of the way uh, of, of, uh, of the combat. Many of these families were just women or children because the men are being, being taken into the army. They are defending their homeland. Thousands of people leaving their homes. They join a long line of what is referred to as the diaspora, the dispersion. And uh, the diaspora, uh, there's a long history of this, but the diaspora are displaced people groups who flee war, poverty, famine, persecution, and other reasons why they would feel that their lives are in jeopardy and they are trying to get someplace where they can find safety. We've seen it in, in just recent years, the diaspora that have left Afghanistan. I'll come back and talk about that in a few moments. Syria, Iraq, Iran, Mexico, uh, Cuba. Isn't it amazing that after 75 years, there are still people who will get on a raft and try to cover the 90 miles from Cuba to Key West. They're a part of the diaspora. Out of the Central American countries, South American countries, maybe you remember seeing pictures uh, in the last number of years uh, of the bridge out of Venezuela, packed with people who were fleeing out of Venezuela. Many African countries. I have a good friend, he and his wife uh, live in Tyler, Texas. They attended our church and uh, they came uh, from, the, from the Democratic Republic uh, of, of Africa, or excuse me, of the Congo, DRC. And, uh, and they cannot go back 
because of what is going on there. They're a part of the diaspora. Other modern-day diaspora include people who have come to the United States and other places from China. The Boer Wars back in the 1850s and other wars. And they, and they came here. Uh, in v the Vietnamese boat people, many of them, settled here in the United States. Laotians, especially the Hmong people. People from Cambodia. People from Russia who fled, uh, fled uh, Russia and, and those countries back in the early 20s, 1920s, during the Bolshevik uh, revolutions. People from Germany who fled, uh, not just Jews, but others uh, who fled before the, uh, uh, the Nazi regime, even before uh, World War I. Uh, my grandmother uh, is, uh, is one of those who fled Germany uh, before the First World War and came to Galveston. Many others that we know are happening right now, I can't go through the whole list. We can take it back historically. The, uh, the fact that the Jews uh, are a part of the diaspora, the Polish, the Czech, the Irish fleeing the, uh, 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 the potato famines, the Mongols in China, and even Native Americans, all are a part of this great uh, grouping of people that we would include under the diaspora. The Jewish diaspora uh, began uh, with the Assyrian conquest of the Northern Kingdom around 700 BC. You remember that after Solomon died and his son became uh, the king of Israel, that the kingdom was divided, the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. The Northern Kingdom was, was conquered by Assyria around 700 BC, and they came in and they took all the people off of the land and dispersed them throughout their existing kingdom. The Babylonians conquered the southern kingdom in 570 BC, and uh, they took the people off of the land and they took them to Babylon. Many of them chose to stay in Babylon. We know that under Cyrus that many returned to Jerusalem and they rebuilt uh, the city. Read your Old Testament. Uh, but the, one of the results of this was the fact that all through uh, the then known world, the Jews went out and they established Jewish communities. They established synagogues. The initial characteristics of those of the diaspora is, is first of all, they have lost all sense of security what they were facing in their own place, their own land, uh, deprived them of that security. Plus, they're, they're leaving, they're, they're traveling without shelter. Uh, it doesn't take very long if you do a search uh, of finding uh, the story, the history of many of these people as they flee whatever it is where, that they're fleeing and to see how they travel without shelter, without food, they really are without hope. They have all they're all they're hoping for is to escape, to get away, to find some of the things that they've lost. Many of them do so without family. Uh, last night, as my wife and I were watching the news, uh, they were interviewing a young woman 
uh, who was born in Ukraine, who had come to the United States to study here. She got married, and she was weeping as she was saying, my mother and my father and my grandmother and my grandfather and my brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles are, are in Ukraine, and I don't know what's happened to them. This is the lot of the diaspora. To the true follower of Jesus Christ, the, the diaspora presents us an opportunity. And again, I, I, I've got to emphasize how important it is that we not view the diaspora, no matter where they are from, to not view them in a geopolitical sense. You and I, if we are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, our allegiance is to a higher kingdom. Our first allegiance is to the kingdom of Jesus Christ and to view the world through that lens and to realize that as we, are, as we are looking at the diaspora, the diaspora that no matter where they may be, and especially if we see them coming here to our country, is an opportunity to demonstrate to them the love of God. All the things that they have left and the opportunity that is given to us to show them that God loves them and God cares for them that they matter to God. One example, a very, very dramatic to me example, how many of you remember uh, a few years back, maybe 10 years back, uh, the, the big tsunami that, that hit Indonesia? You, you remember reading about that? Some of you do. One of the places that was hardest hit was an island in the nation, Indonesia as a, as a nation of islands, it was Aceh. And the, uh, uh, the tsunami uh, traveled, uh, if I remember correctly, traveled uh, over a mile inland, destroying everything, filling wells with seawater, destroying homes. The people of Aceh were a, a seafaring people. They were fishermen. Their boats were destroyed. It was considered to be one of the most resistant areas to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were predominantly, almost entirely, followers of Islam, and they were very, very staunch. After the tragedy, Islam, Islam other, other Islamic nations didn't do anything to try to help them. The first relief crew to land on the island of, uh, of Aceh flew in in, a, in an aircraft flown by MAF. I mean, how many of you know who MAF is? Good, I get to educate you. It's, it's called Mission Aviation Fellowship. And they use aviation uh, to take the gospel into, into the most remote, remotest parts of the world. An MAF aircraft landed at Aceh, and the people that were on board 
were a part of Kama Services, the relief and development arm of the Christian Missionary Alliance. The Alliance has a very strong presence in Indonesia. And these men came to see what can we do. And over the next weeks and months and years, uh, the Christian Missionary Alliance, Samaritan's Purse, other Christian relief organizations worked in concert to rebuild this place. They built their, rebuilt their homes. They dug new wells. They even built them new boats to restore them into their, into their life, lifestyle. And many of them would say, why are you doing this? Our own people haven't lifted a finger. Why are you doing this? And the response was, because God loves you. And that was their refrain. We do this because God, because the Lord Jesus Christ loves you. It's also an opportunity to, to demonstrate loving God. You remember Jesus uh, uh, made the statement to his disciples. He said, you, you've loved me, and this is how I know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, this is how I know that you love me, because uh, when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was thirsty, you, you gave me water to drink. And the disciples said, Lord, when did we do that? And he said, when you did it, to the very least of these. And when we respond to man's inhumanity to man, when we respond to the heartache and brokenness of people who are suffering and we bring them that cup of water, when we clothe them naked, we are demonstrating our love of the Lord Jesus Christ. It gives us an opportunity to build bridges of love that are strong enough to carry the gospel. I was speaking to a friend of mine uh, who was a missionary in, uh, in Indonesia at the time. He was telling me about some of these things. And one of the things that, that I realized in talking to him was these guys didn't get off of that airplane and walk up to the very first person they see and grab him by the shoulder and shake him and say, Brother, are you saved? Wouldn't have worked. But they worked to build a bridge of love that was strong enough to carry the gospel. There is a vibrant church of Jesus Christ on Aceh today. It gives us an opening to actively proclaim the gospel. I fear, and I'm going to come back to this in a moment, I fear that in our American culture, in our American church today, we depend upon a passive presentation of Jesus Christ. Expecting people to look at our lives and respond to that, almost by osmosis. 
but to actively proclaim the gospel, to actually active engage in making disciples of the nations. I realize all of us can't go to every nation in the world. Isn't it amazing that in these, what I believe are the last days, God is bringing the nations to us. Think about that. Why would we even respond to this? Why would we get involved? Why would we, why would we become engaged in, in these ways? After all, the only way that, that that war over there is affecting us is the fact that I'm now paying, what, 40 cents a gallon more for diesel than I was last week? Not really making any impact on my life, is it? I'm not suffering. I'm not hurting. I'm, I'm, you know, I go into my house, I turn up the heat, and I've, I've got, I'm warm and comfortable, and I go to the refrigerator, and I pull out whatever it is I want to eat. I probably eat too much of it. Why would we do this? Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Lost people matter to God. Lost people matter to God. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Do you remember? I remember. I remember what it was like. I remember to be without hope. I remember to see my life failing before me. I had no hope. I had no God. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. I sure am glad Paul could say that. That way I don't have to claim it. But I understand Paul's heart. That was the way he felt about what he had been and what he had done. I may not have persecuted the church of Jesus Christ, but I know what a sinner I was. And I can understand Paul's statement. Lost people matter to God. I want to use these next few moments to talk about the motivation for the mission. Have you noticed in, in the last 10, 15 years, this has become very, very important. How many companies that you have worked for have gone through a, sometimes an excruciating process 
to define their mission. This is kind of the, uh, kind of the, the modern day, uh, uh, I, I don't know what to call it. Anyway, it happens. And the reason they've come up with a mission and a mission statement and they boil it down as succinctly as they can so that they as a company can focus and not get caught up in all the peripherals that might, take, that might sap their strength. We have a mission. We read it. The mission of the church of Jesus Christ is to make disciples of all nations. The emphasis of that verse is not on the go. The emphasis of that verse is on make. That is the verb, make disciples of all the nations. That's our mission. The motivation to fulfill that mission. Now, here's, here's another statement that I want you to hold on to. You only, excuse me, you truly believe only that which motivates you to action. This is a synopsis of James. It's a synopsis of John 3. It's, a, it's taught many different, many different places. You truly believe only that which motivates you to action. Now, I'm sure that this is a scenario in which many of you are familiar. You're driving down the road, and all of a sudden, you look in your rearview mirror, and there is a vehicle sitting there. Back in the old days, we would call it a bubblegum machine, but now it's a light bar, and you very quickly identify that this vehicle behind you belongs to the constabulary. What is your first reaction? It's one of two things. Either you look down at your speedometer or you take your foot off of the accelerator. Because you truly believe that if you are in violation of the law, those lights are going to come on. You were motivated to action because you truly believed. What, made it, what, what motivated Paul also motivated us, or should motivate us. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read a portion of it, make a couple of comments, read another, to talk about this motivation for the mission. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, our bodies, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we were in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not because, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the, in, in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, we are of good courage, 
I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Number one, you and I, because of the new birth, because of the Spirit of God quickening us and bringing us into, into, into the body of Christ in His kingdom, changes our perspective. Paul's talking about that perspective of, of being in this body, and we're being, because we're still in this body, we're, we're separated from what we have and what we anticipate and what we hope for in heaven, and, and we desire we want that. We hope for that. We, we, uh, we look forward to it. A, a good friend of mine, a dear friend of mine, uh, died just a couple of weeks ago. And as they took him into the ICU with his system shutting down because of COVID, uh, the nurse came in and the first thing he said to her, he says, I want to see Jesus. And she said, well, a couple things we need to do before, we, before you get that. She was a pretty good nurse. But he repeated himself. It wasn't very long before Ron had his wish. That desire. But that, that, that perspective, that, that perspective of the fact that, that we now have an eternal perspective, we have an eternal hope, we have an eternal promise, changes everything in the way in which we view this which is temporary. Now I realize, now I'm 76 years old, and 76 years old, this doesn't feel very temporary. But when you put it into perspective of the thousands of years that people have been here on the earth, it's pretty temporary. <laughs> it's just kind of a speck, even that much. But because we have this perspective, we look at the moment differently. How does this moment, how does this exchange with this person, how does my anger, how does that match up to an eternity? I'd really rather be with Jesus. Therefore, Paul says, it is our ambition in everything we do to be pleasing to God. Paul exhorts us, he says, I would rather be a, a God-pleaser than a pleaser of men. So we have this eternal perspective that motivates the moment. And we have this deep-seated desire to please Him. Now, you can you look in the mirror yourself and, and say, is this, my great, is this a great motivation in my life? I want to please Him? 
more than I want to please myself. You know, when I'm faced with a temptation, small or large, do I want to please me? Or is my greatest desire to please Him? Which leads us to the truth of accountability. That we are each one going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, the judgment seat of Christ. Now, remember that there are two judgment seats, two judgments in the Scriptures. There is the great white throne judgment that is revealed to us in the end of Revelation, where every person who is outside of Christ will stand before God. They will give an account of their lives, and they will, they will be judged that is not a place where, you will, where it will be decided whether you're saved or lost. You will be lost if you're there. But here he speaks of this bima, this judgment seat of Christ, where I'm going to stand before Jesus and, and, and he's going to, to, to ask, what have I done with my life for Jesus' sake? Paul's reflecting back to the, a previous statement that, that he had made to these very same Corinthians about the fact that the day is going to come when all, everything is going to be piled up together, wood, hay, and stubble, and gold and silver and precious jewels. And the fire is going to be put to it, and whatever remains is going to be your blessing and mine the judgment seat of Christ. We are going to be held accountable for how we have lived out this very short lifespan on the face of the earth. Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians, he says, therefore knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. I realize that reading that, some of us immediately react. What do you mean fear? That really means awe, awe. This word is used many, many times. Phobos, anybody, uh, anybody really good with your uh, etymology of, of words and understanding of Greek and Latin? Any of you have any? I want to ask you to raise your hands. Do any of you have a phobia? That's where that word comes from. You know, are, are, you, are you claustrophobic? Uh, are, I won't even try to go into all the other phobias and phobas. Uh, but that's the root of this word. Peter uses it. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. He said, but wait a minute. Perfect love casts out fear. Amen. Scripture says that. But Scripture also says that whom a father loves, he disciplines. Now, maybe you never did anything wrong to where you feared your father's discipline. We had a woodworking shop in our backyard, <clears throat> and uh, uh, my dad was a woodworker. And if things went really bad, there were two things that signaled trouble. 
One of them was if he reached up into the overhead of the, of the shop and pulled out a strip of about inch and a half, two inch wide lath, took it over to the saw, cut off about a foot and a half piece of it, you knew trouble was coming. But sometimes he didn't have time for that. And when he was in the shop or when we were out building a house, he was always wearing his nail apron and he always had his hammer. I've, I have this hammer now. I never used it on my son. But he would take that hammer and put the handle in the palm of his hand with the handle sticking out like this. And my dad had been a boxer, and I guarantee you that did not feel good. I feared his discipline. The psalmist said the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding of all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Now here's the question. Is this fear for those who do not know God? As I have read different books, some people have taken this in that instance of saying, because we know the end of, of these people who do not know Christ, that is a motivation, and we bring to them the gospel. That can be taught and be substantiated in many other places in Scripture. But if we're going to be really good exegetes, if we're really going to put Scripture within its context, I think we have to return to that this is the fear from the, our accountability to God. That seems to be the context. The second word here that may, may bother some of us is the word persuade. Persuade is a very, very strong word, isn't it? Matter of fact, it's used in other places in Scripture, but the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. Think about that conversation. In the uh, parable of uh, the rich man Lazarus, the rich man is asking uh, for, for mercy and to send Lazarus back so that he could tell, tell his family not to come to this place. And the statement is, but if they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. From Paul's ministry, but while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, uh, the Jews with one per accord rose up against Paul and sought and brought him before the judgment seat saying, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. To persuade. The time this morning to put that in with a context of our lives. Let it, let it ruminate there for a little bit. Peter uses another word that is also important. 
Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to any, everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. The phrase, make a defense, it's a different word. It's the Greek word apologia. Uh, it is what we get the word apologetics, an explanation. They do work harmoniously, but they are different. I love this passage. I love this passage as, a, as sitting with how do we persuade where, where Isaiah says, come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they'll be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the bread of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Motivated through this drive to persuade. Back to 2 Corinthians, for the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. What does it mean to be controlled by the love of Christ? Are we controlled by the fact that He loves us? Or is the fact that he loves us tied into, well, he said, if you love me, what? You'll keep my commandments. You will keep my word. The love of Christ controls me. One, one translation says, constrains me. The love of Christ for the lost, the love of Christ for me, the love that I have for Christ. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made himself who knew no sin. He, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God has not given to the angels he has not given to the stars, although the stars speak of His glory. He has not given to the earth. He has given to us, to you and to me as those who are His children. He has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. I love the story that Stephen Albright shared with us a couple of weeks ago about how this, this uh, uh, Muslim gal, girl uh, had, had a dream about Jesus. But it wasn't the dream that brought her. But rather, she came, she found these workers, these other believers of Christ and said, tell me about this Jesus. Jesus. 
the ministry of reconciliation. We live among a people. By the way, I, uh, I read recently, you know what the fastest growing religious group is in the United States? It is Islam. It's the fastest growing religious group in America. The estimates are that by the year 2050, half of the people in the United States will be of the, of the Islamic faith. But there's a group that's growing faster. And that's the group of people who have no religious affiliation or faith. According to the latest Pew poll done in December, three out of every 10 people in the United States say that they have no faith. They have no religious preference. They either atheistic, agnostic, or just don't care. We are given the ministry of reconciliation and we are given the tool that we need for that ministry. The Word of God is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It is the Word of God, according to the passage that we read earlier. It is the Word of God that brings faith. Without, without the Word of God, there is not faith. And we're given that Word of reconciliation. And then Paul says we're ambassadors. And again, very interesting. This word is used in a couple of different ways. One of the ways in which it's used, as one that we're most familiar with, is that a country sends an ambassador to another country to represent the sending company, country. And, and, and they do so in order to bring about harmonious relationship or relationship, period. But the word that is used here, this translated ambassador, speaks in a different direction. In the Roman Empire, uh, states or, or uh, governed areas fell into one of two categories. They were either those territories that were totally bought into the Roman uh, conquest, and they are fully supporters of Rome and fully supporters of Caesar, or there were those who had just recently been conquered, and it, there was work that needed to be done to bring them into that relationship with Caesar. The word that Paul uses here is the latter. And I like, I just love that thought because it means that we are sent to ambassador, as an ambassador, ambassador to a people that are not followers but whom God is drawing because lost people matter to God. Lost people matter to God. So what do we do? Okay, here's what you've been waiting for, the conclusion to get ready to, uh, to, to go home and eat and whatever. What do we do? What's our response? Number one, pray. 
Prayer is the first work of God. He said, pray that the Lord would send workers into the harvest field. He repeated that several times. Pray that people would be drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray for those workers who are serving wherever it is they may be. Pray for one another. Pray that we would fulfill the mission of the church. I'm sure that most of us spend time alone praying. Hopefully, you spend time as families praying. I would, I would hope that, that even families would get together with, for the purpose, not of any other purpose, not of eating, not of fellowship, not of whatever else, but to pray and to pray for the mission. I would love to see the day when we, as the body of Christ that's called Hope Chapel, regularly meet together for one purpose and one purpose alone, to pray for the fulfillment of the mission that has been given to us. Now, I know in other missionary presentations, you probably think you know what's coming next. But I'm going to turn it around. We need to go. We need to, be, to go, whether it is across the street or across the sea. We need to go. How many, again, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. How many of you know the, the names of at least two people in all of the houses that are somehow or another contiguous with your house? You know, the average is that, that, would, that in, a, in a cluster of nine houses, you're the one in the middle, eight families. Do you have a relationship with those families? How about working to build a bridge of love that is strong enough to carry the gospel? Sociologists tell us that there are three things that have led uh, to, to the uh, to the downfall of the American culture. All right? You want to write these down. It's very, very important. Three things. Central air conditioning, remote control for the TV, and the garage door opener. How many times, you, if you come to my house, you realize it can't be true of me because my, gar my garage is so full of my junk that I can't get a car in there. But when I could, you know, you come up to the house, hit the button, the door goes up, you drive in, close the door, go inside, the air conditioning is on, I don't need to go outside, sit down in front of the television, I don't have to get up, I just move, you know, that's my, the strongest muscle in our bodies these days is what? Our thumb. But what does it do in our propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Give. Everything I have came from God. Nothing that I have. How many of you, oh, you're going to show your age here. How many of you remember the old television program, The Waltons? Okay, see, that's, that's, all, that's all the gray hairs in the, in the house. They would close every program with old Grandpa Walton praying around the table, and he would say, 
God, we planted this garden. God, we, we weeded it. We, we grew it, but we thank you for it anyway. Everything we have comes from God. The challenge is, well, I, I can't afford to give anything more than I'm giving. Well, probably better save that for another sermon. Pray, go, give. The opportunities before us. Let's talk about those Afghan refugees. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands that have come to the United States. I read just the other day that Comma Services is partnering with other groups to give to local churches a grant for them to be able to help an Afghani family resettle in their community. My church in Longview is, is, is sponsoring too and doing everything they can do, provide a place for them to live, furniture, all of those kinds of things. Why? Because the love of Christ constrains them. The world is coming to us. Ukrainian refugees. This was posted on the Comma Services uh, website. On the morning of February 24th, 2022, Russian forces invaded Ukraine by air, land, and sea. Ukrainians are now being forced to flee their homes for safety. Comma Services is joining with our national church partner and the pastors of Kiev by providing food assistance, compensating the cost for housing and travel as needed for those evacuating the war zone. Would you join us in coming alongside our partners in Ukraine? The giving would help the local church provide aid and relief to those who have been left in great need because of this crisis. And there's places there. If you just go to commaservices.org, you can find out more of this information or go to cmalliance.org and you'll find more information there. I don't know how the Ukrainians, refugees, are going to, how they're going to come to the United States. There are already a bunch of them here great opportunity of carrying the gospel. Ross, if you want to come, we'll be ready in just a moment. And a time long ago in a land far away, actually that boils down to about 50 years ago in South Carolina, I met a, a man who was the leader of his church in a country in South Africa. And he, he told us of what God was doing in that country. And he taught us this little ditty, this little song. Lord, use me. Here am I. Use me. I want to be greatly used of thee. Across the street or across the sea, Lord, here am I. Use me. You truly believe only that which motivates you to action. 